0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. I'm Andy Boyd. Today we're talking with Francois Clemens about his new book, Officer Clemens. Clemens is best known for playing Officer Clemens on the long-running children's program, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, but he's also performed in operas and toured around the world with his Harlem Spiritual Ensemble. Francois, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Um, I hope these uh, mechanical things work out for us. Yes, I think, I think we're uh, out of the woods now. <laughs> so, I'd love to start by talking about your childhood. You grew up in Blackwater, Mississippi. Uh, no, what... Actually, my, my family was there. Your family was there.
1: I was, I was so young, I don't remember that. I didn't really start thinking about stuff until we got to Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So, there was a history in uh, Blackwater, but I really only remember Tuscaloosa and Birmingham, Alabama, where originally I had been born before they went over to Mississippi and and, um, uh, New Orleans. But uh, so my real uh, reason for including that was so that people would understand what I would consider an earthy beginning uh, rather than in a big city like Birmingham. So I gave uh, additional information, but my mother was my main source of um, the specific things that happened and the specific cities we were in. You know, a kid does not remember uh, Blackwater or anything until you're about three two, two years old, maybe. Yeah. And even then, uh, start, it's pretty hazy. Uh, yeah. Other than that, it's hazy. Except I kept asking my mother, where's my father? Where's my great grandmother? You know, where's going on? And at first, she didn't want to talk about it. It was very, very painful for her. But eventually, I got her to start talking about our lives in Tuscaloosa and in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. And over in Mississippi, she talked about it, but uh, not, not, you know, extravagantly or great detail. She was very terse uh, because it was a bad memory for her and the pain for when I was growing up. My parents had a difficult relationship, to say the least. So I tried to write about it, you know, very honestly in the uh, book. But uh, sometimes it was very painful to go back and remember that nightmare uh, that my that my father and my mother put me through as a young boy, me and my brother. I have an older brother. And uh, much later, I was able to talk with him about what it was like. And he remembered a little more than I did. And he, he, generally, there was a consensus that our parents were not, just shouldn't have gotten married. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, They did not get along well at all. And uh, a lot of the source of, Difficulty and pain was that my my father belonged to an old school, which doesn't make sense to us. But he felt that my mother should obey him, mm-hmm. and if she decided to do something else or express another opinion, he was very very adamant against it. He uh, did not tolerate tolerate her individuality, and that was the source of their. Uh, combat. I hate to say that word, combat. Yeah. But you know, they, um, I, I also saw some things as a child that left me traumatized. And one was the knife and the blood. Uh, years later, I realized why I had such incredible trepidation about using a knife to cut butter or to cut bread, something simple. And I, I never, never, ever liked it. And when And I, I went into therapy and when I spoke with my psychiatrist, he said to me, these are memories from your childhood, Francois. You have to go back. You have to see them. And then maybe if you can, you have to forgive them. There's a letting go instead of holding on to it and holding on to the pain. And through that process, I uh, I healed myself by saying, I don't want to hate anybody. I want to forgive and let it go. And it's like a big weight, huge, uh, let off of my chest because I I'm not a person who is Uh, So, um, you know, so fighting, so uh, once so disagreeable that you get guns out and things like that. Well, there were people around us who did. Mm -hmm. And uh, my true uh, saving grace was learning to let it go. And when I did, uh, I was able to it was like a release in my life, a certain freedom. I'm very grateful that, uh, that happened. And uh, so when I got to Youngstown, Ohio, I was only five or six years old, but I felt a freshness, something else opening up in terms of life, uh, more opportunities, nice people. At that age, I was able to be outside of the family and go to uh, the community settlement house, and I met people there and played games. Uh, after being with Fred all those years, he talked about how important it was for children to play. And I initially, I was so I uh, said I was traumatized and I didn't talk or communicate very much. But after a short time, uh, the, the counselors and the uh, people who were running this uh, community center talked to me individually, spent a lot of time. It was very nurturing. And I began to talk to them and then they encouraged me to mix and talk with the other children and I began to play again. And in my opinion, that playing was part of what healed me from mm. the trauma
0: of my youth. Mm. I, I got the sense reading the book that your, your home wasn't always the most nurturing or comforting place, but that you found other people in your life who were able and willing to kind of play that nurturing maternal <clears throat> or paternal role for you. Is that, is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely true. I, I went through a very
1: special kind of understanding the issue of um, trust. Mm-hmm. Who was I going to trust? And I have to tell you that it was very hard to trust my parents, so I didn't. Uh, I um, began to realize that complete strangers were very nice to me. And when they were very nice to me, uh, they made me want to mix with them more and more. And so I would sit, you know, a young person sitting and saying, my parents say they love me, but they're behaving in a horrible way. So maybe that stranger has a, uh, a key to something, a clue <clears throat> to what my childhood needed. And so I began to spend time with that stranger, and they really were sent from God like an angel. And then I would find another person and another one at my church. I spent a lot of time at church, and those lady deaconesses kind of took over uh, a certain kind of education where they would take me to concerts and to uh, uh, parks like, uh, like uh, uh, what we call Kenny. Idora was what it was called in Youngstown, but it's a, um, where you have the roller coaster and uh, you know sure. of reds uh, go around the, on the uh, the uh, merry-go-round. And they began to do those kind of things. My parents did not. I don't know why. Uh, my, my father could have done that and should have done it. Well, he didn't. And when I got to Youngstown, the ladies, the deaconesses at the church, it was almost like every week somebody would say, okay, this is your turn. This is your turn and this is your turn. And they, they helped to bring me out still even more because I could read. Uh, I, was a, I had no trouble with mathematics, no trouble with uh, the basics, spelling and writing. Uh, I loved to hear them tell me stories about what it was like down south. And that's where all this basically comes from, those stories that my mother and my aunts told me about what was going on. And I, um, I listened very, very intently. I wanted to know. What was back there, what was happening? And because of the pain associated with my mother, she couldn't talk about it in detail. So my aunts began to tell me privately what had happened. And it was just such a shock uh, to have it verbalized with such authority and such specificity. They knew what had happened. And they were much older, of course, but they told me, and I sat there like a child just absorbing this poison. It was awful. I really mean it. Uh, you, don't, you know, if you see people on television rioting, and you see those police and all that, that's what it felt like. My parents fighting
0: was a very, very, very painful experience. Yeah. So, and but your your aunts were kind of willing to uh, to step into that role as well a bit, and and kind of fill in those details that your parents wouldn't talk about.
1: You know, it's interesting in a, um, a community like that. Uh, it's not considered an intellectual community or a community of financial wealth or anything. But it almost seems like everybody knew Francois was traumatized and he needed just a little bit more care and love and nurturing. Mm-hmm. And they gave it to me. I went to my aunt's houses because I knew she was going to hug me and put me on her lap or feed mm-hmm. me. or And I went to the, another aunt. I had about five of them, and Cora and Hattie and Emma and uh hattie they were all there together and it was like going from one house to the next because we all lived in the same basic neighborhood and uh, thank god my mother didn't mind me going over and spending time with those ladies because uh, they in some ways were taking care of her too so um i spent a lot of time away from home intentionally because um, I didn't want to start any trouble. <clears throat> I didn't want to be a part of any that was started by anybody else. Um, as I got older, I began to understand that usually in those situations, it takes two to tango. And if uh, you can't work out problems verbally. You tend to resort, you know, to physical. And that's what was difficult. My parents were not sophisticated people. They were not educated or learned. So when they had trouble, they had difficulties working them out and compromising. And so I, uh, I started staying away from home, particularly in Ohio, where I began to know kids at school, third grade, fourth grade. And my teachers in school were really gung-ho on the music. They heard the voice. Right from kindergarten, I sang solos that I had learned in church or learned from my great-grandfather, my grandfather. And so um, when I was in school, I began to be happy. So interesting. I was so happy. I didn't want to go home at the uh, end of a session. I wanted to stay. So I often stayed after school to help my teacher. Uh, I'd clean the blackboard or I'd uh, pick up after we had had papers or some mess. And I began to endear myself to every single teacher I I had from first grade to sixth grade. But the basic motivation was I didn't want to go home, and they tolerated it that I stuck around after school. It was just amazing. Yeah. And I'm very blessed. You know, I'm blessed that I had the teachers that I have had. Teachers are so important in life. And when I started teaching at uh, uh, Middlebury College, I gave myself over to that experience on the same level that I felt my teachers in Youngstown had done. And that is, if a student needs needs extra time or extra rehearsals or whatever it was, I tried 100% to say, yes, let's get a book out, let's figure out a time, and let's get together. And so it kept me pretty busy, to be honest. But I was very, very happy that I did it because now when I talk to my cosmic children, as I call them, all of them refer back to the quality of love and care that I shared with him. And they came many times to get that, that love and that caring, unconditional love. And I used to say to them, well, I'm giving you what Fred Rogers gave to me. Mm. And Fred Rogers gave me such a reason to continue my life and the understanding of my value. And I, I absolutely am indebted to him forever. <laughs> That's so crazy. And <laughs> um, writing this book, I talked to him a lot. I was sitting right where I'm sitting now. And I you know I'm just going, I'm just sharing with you what a sense what a presence he seems to have even though he's dead. Physically he's not around but, but uh, spiritually there's an energy that I firmly believe is him. Hmm. And it blessed this undertaking and gave me many of the ideas that I used in the book. I sat here very quietly and meditating or I began to sing softly to myself. And that's when ideas would come to me or things that I had forgotten about. I would remember them and continue my writing. So and I'm, I'm, we're working on it, the next book.
0: <laughs> that's fantastic. I, I'd love to talk more about the spirituals, which have been a, an important uh, style of music to you throughout your life. And um, I, I'd almost, uh, I, I want to maybe wonder if if in a way spirituals became your religion once you started to question the kind of official doctrine of the Christian church. Would you talk a little bit about what spirituals meant to you, kind of how you were introduced to the spirituals and, uh, and how, how they've kind of carried with you throughout your life?
1: Well, I was very young. I went to church with my family and I heard the
0: spirituals, swing low, sweet
1: chariot, and there's a Bomb in Gilead, and uh, wade in the water, all, all of those I heard in church. And I heard my great-grandmother, my grandmother, and my mother sing those songs. So they went into, deep into my soul. And when I got to Youngstown and stuff, I was looking for some uh, a comfort songs or comfort. I would sing those songs, and they comforted me. I felt wonderful inside. I was empowered. Empowered to do what? I don't know. But I felt very, very strong. You know, as a young person, I was eight and nine years old. And the people at the uh, church I went to. They were the first ones who really put their, their finger on it and said, you know, this boy has leadership. Come on over here. And her name was uh, Madeline. I can't think of Madeline's last name, but she was the choir director. And she said, come on over here, boy, and stand next to me and sing this part. I can sing the bass not very well, the tenor very well, and I can sing the altos better than anybody else in the church. So I had a high, <laughs> high tenor voice. And so she was so uh, insightful to utilize, to use that talent that I had. And so I was doing it in, in a very amicable way. I can't tell you. She one day said to me, you know, you know these parts as well as I do almost or better. Come over here and teach everybody this song. And she had, and I used to get together sometimes and just I would just sing and she would play. She was very fond of me and I was very fond of her and everybody knew it. And so Madeline, uh, I came over there and I started working on a song uh with the choir and it was just amazing to me the basses did what i told them you know and the tenors i sang with them there were about, only about three or four of us and the altos i sang with them boy and they sang and uh, and likewise for the soprano which was basically the easy part and the melody so there i was working on it with them and having a success and it, it empowered me that mm. something about the music that i made was it, it uh Convince them to to follow my leadership and to accept that this young child, because I was probably considered a prodigy, a child prodigy, and uh, I would suggest things that they would do musically, and they did it, and the piece many times improved or it was more exciting, mm. or we do a different arrangement. So that was my where I trained, where I conducted, and where I started writing out parts and uh, o- uh, organizing them in such a way. They became our arrangements. They were special. Mm. And everyone would talk about it. You know, oh, oh, that's a wonderful job that you're doing. Wonderful. So I kept that up for four or five years because I started out just singing in the choir.
0: That must have been very empowering to have that positive feedback from the community.
1: It was. That's the exact word for it because I began to take on a quality of not just leadership but authority. And I was amazed how people relied on me or sometimes shared certain adult problems. They told me stories, and they uh, checked with me. You know, you have your little circle. And I sincerely began to have a, um, um, a small cult. You could call it a cult, because they always came to church. They always sat with me wherever I sat, and they always uh, spent extra time with me. So that gave me an understanding that there were other people who loved music as much as I did. And what I was doing was very much appreciated. So I just, I kept doing it a long time. Uh, even after I left the Baptist church, I was about 15, 16. Uh, I took a lot of them with me as friends. They attended their church, but we saw each other. And sometimes I'd go back to that wonderful, wonderful Baptist church. Uh, the re- reason I left was because the, uh, a social worker heard me sing. And she uh, promised to pay for my singing lessons. If I would promise not to miss, not be frivolous uh, and all that. And I said, yes, of course. So she paid for my voice lessons. And the person that I studied with Ronald Gould, Dr. Gould was the uh, organist at St. John's Episcopal Church. And he said, if you can come over here and sing tenor solo, Francois, I can pay you 15 or 20 dollars. If that's what all it was. But. I was good money, and it was a wonderful opportunity. So I said yes. And the people at my Baptist church were very, very sad, very sorry. But they said, we understand you're growing, and we can't afford to pay. So we wish you luck. And occasionally they came over to that service to St. John's Episcopal Church. That was like opening a door because not only did he teach me how to use my voice, he taught me to sing in Italian, French, and German. And it was quite, uh, what is the word, frightening? It was, uh, I was so skeptical and so afraid of so much new repertoire, new stuff. And it just seems like he, he, he knew a vast amount more about music than I did. So I listened to him, and I enjoyed the music every time. Uh, it was just, it was so beautiful to me. I had not been exposed to it as a kid at home. So I, uh, I thrived on this relationship with him. And surely enough, in school, my music teachers noticed the difference. Uh, And they were very happy and they got to know Ronald Gould. And later on when I was in high school, they planned my trips uh, to college. They helped me decide which one I was going to attend. Uh, There was a whole process. And my parents wanted me to stay in Youngstown and work as a uh, do some kind of vocational, work, like uh, some kind of electrical stuff, repairing, uh, uh, what do you have, uh, repairing a vacuum cleaner or an air conditioner, or uh, be a plaster or a a bricklayer, a tailor, a chef, they're all wonderful things, to be honest. But it wasn't my calling, my calling was music. And so I listened to my high school music teacher and I said, I want to go to that school that they're talking about Oberlin and he said I'll help you so what we had to do was we wrote away wrote away to Oberlin college and we gave them my music teachers address not my home address and mm-hmm. they sent all kinds of uh, a material about applications ten dollars here fifteen dollars there you know it added up and and the next step was they paid for those applications my music teachers were just uh, they were determined that I should have an opportunity at Oberlin College like everyone else. So I um, accepted their hospitality and generosity. It was very humbling, but it was also very encouraging that they felt I could succeed if I got there. Now it wasn't without some objection, especially from my high school guidance counselor, Mrs. Kreisen, she was a Dickens. Of a mess, um, she uh, told me I didn't belong there, that I wouldn't be one of them. Uh, she said some very uh, harsh things about me accepting who I am in my station in life, making the best of it, and I felt like she was speaking a foreign language. Mm. And I have to tell you what I said a couple of times because it's true. Diva Clemens sprang up, <laughs> full grown in that room. I'm telling you, buddy. I stood up, actually, and I I had a fussing time with her, which she absolutely hated me for, and told her, she doesn't know who I am, how dare you try to tell me where I can go and where I cannot go, and where I can apply and not, and who I belong with and don't belong with, and the word for it, I left, I flounced out of there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I didn't listen for anything else for her, I left her in the standing with her mouth open. Well. She did not take that too well. And she told the principal and the principal a little couple days later called me into the office. I have been so nervous all over that point because I knew that he was going to say something. So I went to his office and I sat down and he was just a a man sent from heaven, maybe one of the archangels, because he, he said to me, I'd like for you to first of all apologize to Mrs. Christ some of the things you said to her hurt her very much. I realized, you know, why you had the discussion and I, I'm not saying you're wrong. But what I am saying is that she's very hurt and maybe you could make her feel better if you apologize to her. So reluctantly, I agreed. He was a very kind man. I said, okay, I will apologize for raising my voice and how I behave, but it's true. She does not, she cannot tell me what to do and where to go. And he said, you're absolutely right. So thank you very much. Now, let's put that aside. And he said, you says you want to go to Oberlin College now. And I thought, well, why is he bringing up that discussion? And he says, I think that's a wonderful idea. Have you been down to the school? And I said, yes, once. My music teacher took me there, and I sang an audition, and they liked me. They sent a communication that I could be accepted. And he said, well, what are you doing for money? And everything stopped. I said, well, I haven't decided yet. I'm uh, going to go down to the bank downtown. It was a bank that seemed to give uh, monies for people to go to college, especially in Youngstown. And uh, I said, but I haven't done anything yet. He said, well, you don't have to be 21 to sign a a loan or something, don't you? I said, he said your parents would have to sign. I said, I know they would not sign. He said, well, listen, let me tell you something. I went to Oberlin College, and I want to help you. Is that all right by you? Well, I could have fallen off that chair. I just—all uh, of heaven descended at once, and I thought, "Mr. Tear, you'll help me?" He said, "Yes, of course I will. You want to go to my alma mater? You've made an excellent choice, young man. Let's <laughs> see what." I- oh, it was just—he was so thrilled yes. that I wanted to go. To. There were only two people in my class, my high school graduating class, that went to Oberlin, and uh, it's only a hundred miles from Youngstown. So I uh, listened to him, and this. Proposal was he's going to present me to the Oberlin Alumni Club of Youngstown, Ohio. So they arranged a date. My, my music teacher, whom he had been conspiring with without me knowing, said, I'll play for you. So I didn't have to worry about in an accompanist. And I'll give you a ride out there. I can't tell you what else all they did. But um, I got uh, myself together and got some music together. and We went out there. And we sang for them, and they were so pleased. I have to say they were a wonderful, heavenly-sent group of people. And when I finished, uh, they said, you can stay just a minute, Mr. Quentin, while we have a little discussion. It won't be long. And I'm sure they were discussing whether they would give me money and how much. Because when they called me in, they said, you'll be pleased to know that we were very, very happy with your singing, your abilities, and how you have handled yourself in the community, because I did a lot of singing for it uh, noontime luncheons and special dinners and special holidays, I was, I was hundred percent available. Uh, and the, they said, we've decided we're going to help you go to Oberlin. So we're going to write to the, uh, admissions people and let them know that your uh, scholarship is going to come from the Oberlin alumni club. Will I make you happy, Mr. Clemens? <laughs> 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 oh, my God, I was so happy I could have flown out of there, my wings. And they took care of all the red tape, whatever that would involve. And uh, Oberlin uh, uh, accepted me and my music teacher ultimately drove me back up there with the suitcases and stuff uh, because I, I didn't have a ride and I left my parents' home by that time. And uh, it was the most wonderful thing. It opened up another world for me in terms of the people I met and their ambitions And they, too, liked classical music as much as I did. That was one of the things at home was a problem. I would sing some Schubert song that I was just learning, or Italian song, early Italian, 17th, 18th century. Bel Canto. Mm -hmm. And my parents, if they were there, shut up all that noise. Boy, what is that stuff you're singing anyhow? (laughs) They did not like uh, the Italian or the French or the German repertoire. They didn't know what I was singing, but they said they didn't like it. So I had to go back to school or around the corner to my friend Albert's house to practice singing. I couldn't do it at home. So I left. I left in my senior year and I was very happy. I stayed with my friend Elaine Logan who just died, unfortunately. Mm. She was a wonderful friend. I was complaining about my my, uh, life in my parents' home. And she said, well, you can come stay with me. I said, what do you mean stay with me? What about your parents and stuff? Oh, I'll ask my parents. I'm sure they'll say yes. She had a very different relationship with her parents than I did. <laughs> Sounds like and it. I, I was a little skeptical, you know, because my parents have been so negative. And sure enough, a day or so later, She said, oh, I talked to my mom and my dad. And they said, yes, come on over. We have room and we'll take care of you. Well, 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 here we go again. Strangers or people who are not related to me by blood that were teaching me something about hospitality, about unconditional love, and about nurturing and empathy. So one day when my parents were gone, I packed a lot of my stuff up. I was ready. My friend Elaine could drive. So she drove the car over, and she came up, and she helped me carry my stuff down and put it in the back of her car in the trunk and what have you. And I left, and I never went back. So, uh, you know, the story in the book I tell, it was a week or two later at least when the principal calls me down to the office again. Oh, my God. I thought, what have I done this time? I'm going to get it. <laughs> well, when I walked into the office, it was like they're having a, a summit on the atomic bomb or something. Everybody was there. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Logan, where I was staying, they were there. Uh, my uh, uh, my uh, church minister was there. Mary Lou uh, Williams, the woman who was the uh, social worker who paid for my voice, I said, she was there. Ronald Gould, the organist, he was there. They were all there, my high school music teacher. And they were all sitting around. And I looked, Well, these are my peeps, but what's going on? Yet No one told me about this meeting. And my father, my stepfather and my mother were also there. And so I had such a, you know, it's like that underlying negativity. Something's gonna happen. Something's going to happen. Do, 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 do. The music is all, you know, <laughs> a warning. Mm-hmm. So when I sat down finally, I was very suspicious of what's going to go on here. And the principal, once again, he managed a very good meeting because there was a, some enmity between me and my stepfather. He had beat me about three weeks before that and left me in very bad shape, particularly my back, uh, where I had bleeding uh, ruptures there. From, he whipped me with an ironing cord. And that iron cord was very very painful and I winced and carried it on but I did not cry He was trying to make me cry and I wouldn't so finally uh, when he left and my mother left and everything I went up to my, my Bedroom and my sisters helped me a little bit. They were not very helpful, but they were young and uh, So I got myself together and after that I never told anybody I was humiliating to be beaten like that and so my uh, When I was in the principal's office, and they were saying, you haven't been at home, and we, we, we think we know where you were, but you didn't tell your parents. You know, you're still under their jurisdiction. And I finally said, no, I'm not under their jurisdiction anymore. I'm over 16, and I'm never going back. And my stepfather at that point got in and said, you'll do like I tell you, boy. If I tell you to do this, you have to. And I don't want to hear all this back talk and uh, he was very threatening and very negative so the principal had to say just minute, calm down calm down calm down everyone and i at that moment said look at this this is why i left and you know when you're a kid you don't wear very many clothes i had a shirt on i unbuttoned my shirt and i turned around and i let them see the whelps that i, I had, had on my back and those that were healing scabs and uh there was a gasp in the room what the principal said you treat your son like this your boy, what's What's the matter with you? And my father was speechless, but I said he did it, and I'm never going to let him touch me again. And everyone suddenly were saying to him, especially the social worker, I remember just hearing her say, Mr. Boswell, you can go from here to jail, or you can shut up and listen to what I have to say. She put, used her authority to calm that scene to shut my stepfather up and she said this is child abuse you have done something that's against our law and i can call the police right now and they will come and get you so my stepfather never said another word and the principal uh said you know uh, put back on your coat and everything and uh this is something that we we need to have a serious conversation about and he said, I understand you're staying at the Logan's house. I said, yes. He said, well, if Mrs. Logan and Mr. Logan will agree, you may continue. And they were there, and they said, well, of course we will, uh, will continue. He cannot go back there where his stepfather is unreliable. So, I, you know, it was a thing where I had never told anybody how he beat me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, at this point, it was important for me not to be shy or be humili- feel humiliation, but to tell them the truth. And when I did, the people in authority said, you don't ever have to go back there again. And uh, Mary Lou Williams was a social worker. And I became one of her clients, I guess you could call it. And she saw to it from then on until I went to Oberlin. In fact, she came to Oberlin. I was so amazed when she would show up or call. Uh, and when I, I stayed there four years when I graduated. She came to that. And mm. she was a really wonderful influence in my life. So um, I left that that meeting and knowing that I I had the official permission never to go back. And uh, basically, I only saw my stepfather two or three times in the years uh, since that meeting. I didn't look for him. I didn't want to see him. So it was always an accidental thing in a small town. You're driving or going somewhere where we all used to go. And there he is. But if I saw him, I generally just turned and went in the other direction. Mm. And so that was... Uh, what basically happened, that I got the blessing to stay with the, uh, with the Logans, and they saw to it that I got, they helped me, in. and other people in the community also helped me to get to Oberlin College.
0: I got this sense reading your book that Oberlin was a musical awakening for you, but it was also a place of, uh, of personal change and, and kind of coming into yourself. Would you, uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about kind of what Oberlin meant to you and the people you met there? <laughs>
1: Oh, I'm laughing because you're, you're using such kind, delicate words. Well, I, I yeah. you know, I don't
0: want to. I don't want to uh, put words <laughs> in your mouth.
1: <laughs> I decided. Um, uh, I decided that when I went away to school, I was going to work very hard and be a fantastic musician. That was the first thing I said. Mm-hmm. I want to be considered a great musician. The second thing I said, I'm going to find out what this homosexuality is. This <laughs> feeling that I have for the same sex. I have something that I can't pretend I don't feel. And nobody uh, in Youngstown offered me advice, good advice, what to do. Everyone was saying, stomp it out, throw it away, kill it, you know, whatever. And I said, I'm not going to throw it away. I'm going to figure out what to do. So when I got to Oberlin, I had, in my second year, I had my first affair. And uh, I let let it be known among the kids that I was interested in, who was gay and who was straight and uh, so to speak. Kids began to come out of the closet with me and say, you know, I'm gay too. I'm gay too. I was shocked at how many of them were gay. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it was a wonderful awakening for me. First of all, because among us kids, it was not so much condemned. It was an adult message that they gave us. You must condemn this. But among my peers, they did not shun me and they did not push me away. I got to know them even better, and relationships became intimate. And um, I do talk about a person in the book that I met and that I knew, and uh, he was what we call under uh, on the down low, undercover on the down low. He didn't want anyone to know that he was bisexual and that uh, we were having an affair. And so I honored that for a very, very long time. So all through my junior and senior year, I was what you would call in- involved with someone. And it was a, a very interesting relationship because he had a girlfriend. And manipulating our lives around her was um, interesting, to say the least. Mm-hmm. To the best of my knowledge, she she didn't realize that he and I were having an affair. But after we graduated, I can only give you the... the um, the outline, uh, she did, no. And I don't know if he told her or someone else told her. But basically what she decided, and it was very interesting. She said, I know my husband, my boyfriend at that time uh, cares for you very much. And I can't do anything about that. And she says, I'm, I'm grateful she said that it's you. Because mm-hmm. if he's going to be like that and going to do it, I don't want him having an affair with another woman. And I don't want him to start another relationship with somebody else. So if you uh, can have a part-time relationship and it won't ruin my marriage, let's see, well, let's see what's happened. I don't know. She said, I never thought this would happen to me. And I too said the same thing. I never thought it was happened to me. And to make a long story short, when I, I actually would go visit them. And when I went to visit him, she would leave. Mm. She would go visit her mother. Her her sisters and brothers, cousins, some other. It was interesting. I barely saw her before um, she was saying goodbye, going out of the door. Bye-bye. You guys have a nice time. And that went on for a solid, well, 10 more years. But it started um, at Oberlin College. So I I was not, so so to speak, playing the field. I, I never had that. experience. I don't think I missed out on anything because I was deeply committed to this uh, young man and uh, he was very interested in me and he and I have remained friends to this day. I did not uh, give information that he could be found because he he said to me please don't out me. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I said well our friendship means far more to me than some junk in a that i might write in a book so i changed his name and where he was from i did all those things and i worked it out with my editor so that there's basically no way to trace him yeah and uh, but i'm i very much know where he is and what he's doing for my entire adult life uh you know i was i could not be openly gay because mr rogers asked me not to be mm-hmm. because by the time i got to pittsburgh he and i had a relationship and i was testing and uh there were it was a gay bar in town. I went to the gay bar. I had fun dancing. I mostly danced. And maybe the third or fourth time I was there, I got a phone call from Fred uh telling me you can't go back there anymore because people see you, people recognize you and it'll be very negative for the show. And he said, "If you have to do that, come out. I will accept it. Uh, you'll always be in my heart and my all everything I do, I'll be thinking positive about you, Francois. So it's not about you doing that. It's about the risk of um, supporters, those guys who were at uh, the uh, uh, Cheerios or the Cornflake, you know, variety. Um, Johnson and Johnson. Yeah. And the sponsors. Uh, and Tears, the sponsors. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> The sponsors, he said, will not tolerate an openly gay person on a children's television program. Mm-hmm. Oh, he said, they're going to say terrible things about you. And they're going to draw up something that's totally not true. And it's going to hurt you professionally and personally. Mm-hmm. Because lots of people will not touch you yeah, because of this. Well, it was a big eye-opener for me. It was like, we're, it's grown-up time. Put on your, your grown-up pants and let's get, get this together because... Are you going to be on this program or not? And if you're on this program, what, the, what is the sacrifice if you can't have a partner? You can't go out with him and you could never marry him. Uh, you know, at that, that time, you couldn't marry him. But, and so it was very despairing. I, I, uh, I, I just broke down crying because I was just experiencing something wonderful. And he was saying, you have to stop. So. Publicly, I decided I was not going to ever do anything uh, where my, I drew attention to myself in any kind of a gay situation or with another man. But it also meant that I had to go on the down low with, uh, with my friend. And uh, I couldn't sh- openly share him. And in many ways, that was fine with him. But it wasn't fine with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I messed around there and I got married to a woman. Uh, mm-hmm. It was one of the alternatives that several of the guys who were advising me said, you should do. I spoke to my minister, a deacon, a, a, an advisor, a counselor, everybody. Oh, they said, don't worry, Mr. Clemens, that's going to go away. You're not a gay person. We can tell. If you were gay, we would, we would know.
0: Well, mm-hmm. <laughs> sure.
1: little did they know. And what Fred said, you know, about being on the program, I thought, well, I don't want to lose the program, so I'm going to go quietly and keep to myself and for a very long time i just kept to myself and i didn't say anything to people but i discovered that you know when the metropolitan opera auditions in pittsburgh i placed well in cleveland i talk about it in the book i eventually wound up in new york at the metropolitan opera studio and there were so many gay people around me all of a sudden Mm -hmm. and frankly it, it made me become schizophrenic because there were those who knew me and saw me, who treated me like another gay person. But then when I wasn't with them, I was pretending to be something totally different than what I was. And most of it meant being quiet, just keep your mouth shut and people will not know, people will not become suspicious. They they never challenged me or it was never an awkward situation because I kept my mouth shut and then, to, to discover how many gay guys there were was uh, it was just mind-boggling for a young guy from Youngstown, Ohio. I don't want to say everywhere I looked, there was a gay person, but they were so abundantly <laughs> distributed in my life. Everywhere mm-hmm. I went, I saw a sister. So um, when I traveled, I also found the same thing. Uh, I would arrive at a hotel or uh, to some kind of a symposium. And there are always gay people there as well. And with a little bit of conversation and stuff, I would say I'm gay also. And I made very, very special friends who kind of, um, it's kind of uh, an underground uh, group of people who had ways of talking, double talk, ways Mm of communicating, so that anybody who knew what they were talking about got the hint at all. But if you didn't know what they were talking about, you didn't know who Judy Garland was, or what uh, you know. I, you, you didn't. You know the, yeah. those are our heroines. Yeah. Judy Garland, and, and when she was in The Wizard of Oz, and uh, you know, there was Dorothy. They would say, "Do you know Dorothy?" Uh, and they would ask it very casually, and they would not put any hands or butts on it. And I would say, "Well, yeah, she she and I uh, flew out from New York together, and uh, <laughs> she's with she's with me a lot. She's going she'll meet you a little later if you'd like." That became a dialogue. I swear, we would talk yeah. about Dorothy, Judy, or somebody like that, and uh, nobody. There would be people standing next to us around, they they never look up. They never thought they did. It was such a it was fun yeah. to play uh, that little game like that. But that was part of the thing that I had to learn how to communicate, and I did. And uh, I'm very happy. Newspaper uh, reporters, television reporters. They never outed me, even though several of them very pointedly asked, are you gay? Are you bisexual? What's the story with you? Mm. And one of them was the village voice. I'll always be grateful to them for simply not printing the fact that the um, the reporter, his name is Arthur Bell, and he's dead now. He was a very sensitive man. I'm very grateful because he was one of the ones who said, I can talk about this and this and this and this and this. I said, how do you know all that about me? He said, oh, I've been asking around about you. Mm-hmm. And so what I began to understand is that people do talk to certain people and reporters had a way of getting information. But in all those uh, 40, 50 years, they never outed me. I'm so grateful. Thank you, reporters. T- thank you, hosts and <laughs> whatever else. Because there was a whole lot of them that, uh, that did not feel anger or rejected me because I was gay, even if they were straight. And I have to tell you, one of the most famous people in the world who interviewed me was Oprah Winfrey. Mm. Uh, I went to uh, Detroit and she was the hostess on a local Good Morning Detroit station. I'm pretty sure it was Detroit. And they showed me her picture and said, she's going to interview you this morning. And what I do remember about this woman was that she was thoroughly prepared ask me real questions about Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. None of this pet-pet stuff. And I found it stimulating. And so after that interview, I remembered her for a long time.
0: <laughs> okay, so, so you write in your book, um, it's important for me to establish that I don't think Fred had a racist bone in his body, but neither of us lived in a vacuum. Could you describe kind of how the show dealt with or maybe didn't deal with the question of race? Well, that's
1: what I think is uh, you put your finger on it. They didn't deal overtly, in my opinion, with race. Mm-hmm. And so there were times when I felt like they were um, not listening or they had closed out a certain part of the society because it wasn't a, uh, a good experience and they didn't feel they were doing anything negative. And I don't think at that time we as a society and them particularly were aware that there was so much entitlement that they shared. They were uh, white, educated, lived in the best you know, neighborhoods. And so I don't think they fully understood the challenge of living uh, in, a, in a ghetto and or having come from a ghetto or how other people treated me, not them necessarily, but other people. Um, and I think that was uh, an unfortunate part of our relationship because I knew it. And I was trying to get them to, hey, like, pay attention. I'm in pain. There's a reason I'm in pain. And you can do something about it, but not if you're not aware, if you're asleep. And I'm sorry, I, I set myself up as the unofficial diversity officer because I began to realize that there were situations I would bring up, there would be no response. I thought, well, this is ridiculous. They really don't know uh, what's happening or understand what's happening or uh, what. Why is it that there was no overt uh, response to my uh, mm-hmm. importuning them? Pay attention. There's something going on. There's something unusual. Uh, this is something that's not right. And so it was very frustrating to me sometimes to deal with them uh, because I was at such a disadvantage. Yeah. I was always at a disadvantage. And that disadvantage began to be more and more intense rather than less. Like I could sing as well as I could sing, and I still couldn't get certain auditions. Mm -hmm. I sing as well as I could sing, and I was never asked to come away uh, to a special uh, uh, Mozart symposium or something like that. It was perfect for my voice, and I know that I sang it well. I find uh, tapes and stuff sometimes on the Internet or somebody will send me something. And I'll listen to it. I'll think, my goodness, that's some good singing.
0: <laughs> like,
1: whoever this guy is, he can sing.
0: It's Francois guy, he's got pipes.
1: Yeah, he's got pipes, let me tell you. And, <laughs>
0: and he's using them, and he's using them
1: right. And then, I, you know, I would say, well, yeah, it's me. But I was so young, and I was not doing it consciously in terms of... I sang a lot natural, but I had a very good teacher. So it can, uh, she enhanced what was already there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so since I knew that I could do those things, I thought, well, why can't they see that the reason I'm not progressing in life or the reason I haven't gotten certain uh, advantages is when I walk in, they see that I'm black.
0: Yeah. The
1: only thing that stood out that said, you are different. You are not the white, blue-eyed, blonde-haired singer that we're looking for. You're good, but you're just not the right kind of guy.
0: Could you talk a bit about how you approached the role of Officer Clemens?
1: Well, to be honest, I took myself out of the picture in order to be in the picture, and I stopped being emotional, and I stopped being uh, deeply, deeply caring, and I said, I'm just going to walk through this part, and the only time I came alive was when I was singing, but the, the part as I was acting it, I wasn't doing very much, unfortunately, because I just couldn't get a good grip on being a policeman and the fact that he was kind and empathetic and supportive and nurturing of the other people in the neighborhood and the way again i solved that i decided to uh, think of the puppets as fred rogers some different aspect of him daniel was some aspect and henrietta was some aspect and uh lady elaine you know right down the line daniel tiger so i began to talk to fred all the time mm. regardless of who the other characters were i talked to and with him as Officer Clemens and, I began to warm up and just be myself it took a while i won't pretend it did not and i did what i said i was going to do for the first year or two i did not take the uh the um uniform that i wore i did not take it home mm. i left it in the uh studio somewhere or in the, uh, one of the dressing rooms it was always safe they knew that i had left it and uh nobody ever basically said anything to me but i was leaving it because when i walked out of there i was no longer officer clemens i could be myself and then eventually i found that there was no difference i was beginning to make officer clemens into i had help you know from the cast and from fred they all knew that i was visiting about that role but that i was trying to make my peace with and they would do everything they could to um help me I, I, what i also was uh, shocked about was how many people wrote in to uh fred there were I got a bunch of fan mail from time to time <laughs> where people said not only do they love my singing, but they like the character, Officer Clemens. And I was very um, uh, surprised by that, especially in the beginning. You mean you like him? What, what do you like about him? And then they, you know, he's kind. He uh, can sing beautifully. He's attractive. Uh, he was helping Daniel or helping Henrietta Pussycat. And we like that. So they I were said, really I'll saying
0: be... that they liked you, basically.
1: Yes. And I had to put it there out on the table. They liked me. And they <laughs> not only like me, because of that extension, they liked the character. And so I just said, okay, I'm just going to be myself. And next thing I know, I didn't have any problems being a police officer because I knew that I was being genuine about the caring, about the nurturing, the supporting of people. And Officer Clemens really developed into a, a nice man, so to speak,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, from in the neighborhood. And everybody liked me, and I sang for all special occasions and stuff they would have. And There were many instances that Fred found to write me into the script over the years. Um, I think I was a big asset for him also because of the race problem. I was black, and I was there, and I was very active. In the first couple of years, there were no uh, other full-time black pr- participants except um, uh, as a guest for one performance or two mm-hmm. or or three. And then um, later on, there were a couple of people who, who got also got involved. Uh, Elsie Neal and her daughter. I can't remember her daughter's name, but Elsie is a wonderful artist in uh, Pittsburgh. And the other uh, was uh, Maggie Stewart, who became a regular on the program. And Maggie is incredibly talented as a singer, actress. She does... Um, They call it uh, sign language for deaf people. Mm. uh, She's active in the community. Now, you know, she's not a kid anymore. I still think of her as being in high school. And Maggie (laughs) must be in her her late 40s or 50s, you know, after all these years. Um, But Maggie um, looks like she's a very light-skinned black person, which she is. And I don't know her uh, particular ancestry, whether her mother or father were white or anything like that. But she's very light skinned and totally charming. I love her. Mm-hmm. But uh a lot of people who looked at her did not know whether she was a black woman or white. And so
0: And in the first like, Huh? And in and, and in the first years of the show, I mean you mentioned being the only black person on the show at first, which probably meant for a lot of your white audience members you were the only black person they saw or at least felt like they knew. I mean because little kids yes. really do feel like they know the the characters that they see yes. on television. So did was that part of why you took the role, the idea that you could be a sort of I mean it's it's a, it's a a huge responsibility in a way to be the representative of black america for all these, you know, little white kids. Is that part of what you uh why you took the role too in order to kind of you
1: Well, know, I was uh a little naive and I didn't think I would become such an icon if you please let me use that word. Sure. Uh I really thought I would just be a passing character. And so the idea of lingering and having people care about me and uh, getting involved from their perspective was a total surprise. I was not prepared because I had never had anything to do with television and because I was dumb and naive, all of that. So as people began to respond to me in a very positive way, I said, oh, well, okay, Uh, that's good for me. Fred likes me, too, and I have value to the program. And I think those are the kinds of things I thought about, the value to the program. And yes, I knew that I was often the first black person that they felt who was their friend or they felt they could talk to white people. Mm -hmm. And I um, began to get emails or letters at that time, excuse me, which talked about the wonderful things that they liked uh, in the program. And there were a number of them who said they liked our friendship, your friendship with Officer Clemens. And we love it when he comes and sings. I had a, quite a nice following of people who just out and out said, I love his singing, I love his singing. And so it's the kind of thing where there were a lot, there was a lot of good built into the experience. And one of them, quite frankly, was that I was able to make a living, mm-hmm. I had money. And the second thing was uh, I traveled. I traveled not only with Fred Rogers, I began to get uh, requested to come and do a concert or do. A um, excerpt of, from an opera like Forgy and Bess or uh, sing with the orchestra. And they had some arrangements of some special composers uh, like Aaron Copland and uh, uh, a, couple, a couple of other uh, composers who arranged American Negro spirituals.
0: Mm.
1: And, uh, and I would go out and do those jobs and, and they would talk to me about all of them. I was just so amazed we're watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood whether they were a conductor (laughs) or instrumentalist, really, you know, one of the things that we talked about is every single orchestra I ever sang with, there was a member of who had graduated from Oberlin college. Mm. And I'd say 30, 35, 40%, maybe more. I knew them while I was there or they knew me. And uh, they would say to me, well, I was there, but I didn't know you so well. Or I was there and I, uh, you were so busy. You were an upperclassman. I was so young. Uh, and then there were, of course, those who knew me, and I knew them. There was a drummer, a violist, a cellist. I knew them. And uh, they played in different orchestras around America. I would just go out and say, well, okay, who do I know this time? And uh, the entire cast used to make a joke of it. Fred would say, yes. Now, France is here, so uh, who, who, who went to school with, with Russ, Officer Clemens? <laughs> I swear there would be people who were from Oberlin College. Mm-hmm. I, I boiled it down to the fact, not just me. Oberlin gave them a tremendously fine education so that all over the country, our instrumentalists were playing in these orchestras. I thought that was pretty interesting and uh, uplifting, it was inspiring. And I sometimes would go to dinner with them, I'd sit and chat with them or whatever kind of time I could spend with that person. Uh, I got around a lot to um, many states because I was traveling with Fred when he had not only um, appearances where he did concerts for the children, he often participated in a symposium on early childhood education like
0: mm-hmm.
1: Illinois and Yale uh, and Princeton. And he said, France, would you like to go with me? And I said, yes, I'd love to. So after I went with him two, one or two or three times, he said, would you like to sing something when you come with me? I said, Lord have mercy, yes. So I began to sing a medley of his songs at those uh, um, appointments and, and appearances that he did. And the thing that I realized is he had a lot of them, you know, because he would call me. I was in New York and uh, his secretary would give me the dates and say, you know, you're not working with Mr. Rogers in Pittsburgh anymore. But can you meet him in Dallas or can you meet him in Miami? Mm -hmm. Can you meet him in Seattle or wherever he was going? And they would take care of all the arrangements and I would fly uh, up to uh, present myself with him. And then I would, uh, when we went back to the airport, you know, he went his way and I went mine. Uh, usually I was going back to join the Harlem spiritual ensemble, Mm -hmm. but even if I was just going back to New York, um, you know, I would just go ahead on and and leave and come back to New York and get busy with whatever projects I was planning or the probably other jobs that I was getting ready for. And sometimes I'd do that and sometimes I'd have to leave him and go directly to uh, a place where I was do in Atlanta, something due to perform. And, and they always helped me with those adjustments. They were not difficult because I wasn't handling it alone. Mm-hmm. Coordination all being handled by my agent and by Fred Rogers right hand lady, uh, Elaine Lynch. She was super. And uh, whenever I wanted to do something, I used to call her first.
0: Could you and talk so, a bit? And, oh. Yes. Sorry. Um, could I got the sense reading your book that uh, Fred Rogers was one in a series of uh, kind of father mentor figures for you. Could you talk a bit about your friendship with Fred Rogers and, and kind of what he taught you and why, why that friendship was so important to you?
1: Uh, well, first of all, there were a couple of guys who reached out to me. Uh, my high school music teacher, Mr. Miller, James Miller, was the first one who made a, a, an impression on me and said, you know, you can have a career. You're a wonderful singer. You have a wonderful voice, a way of presenting yourself. So you need to start thinking about that, young man, <laughs> young man. Mm-hmm. So um, I, he was the first one. And he really was my friend for years, even after I went to Oberlin and after I graduated. I would come back to Youngstown and go to Rayon School, which is where I got my uh, high school diploma. And I would talk to the kids. Sometimes they had a whole assembly. And I would sing to them. Sometimes he would play for me. I've been able to do a lot of singing a cappella. So I would sing a cappella and talk about what it's like to be at Oberlin. And then uh, eventually I carried on over to uh, when I was in Pittsburgh and when I was in New York. So I was like the the hometown guy that made good. Getting on a television program like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood ultimately proved to be a big, big, big asset for me in terms of people's attitudes, how they felt about it and their desire to go ahead and have me come and visit and pay a real fee. So I was very grateful for that. Um, The other thing about father figures was um, Ronald Gould was my vocal teacher. And I studied privately with him for three years. And once again, Ron saw a special talent that he thought was uh, something he could connect with. And he taught me my first songs in German French, and Italian, as well as many songs in English. The thing about Ron was he had no children. He was married to a beautiful lady named Marcia, And they kind of adopted me. Uh, They lived not too far from where I live. So I wound up having a dinner at their house and uh, staying with them and singing, having a voice lesson. Uh, First was every Wednesday. And then uh, he began to add days, and he began also just to say, "Uh, can you come by the house this evening? Are you busy? And heck, I would say, no, I am not busy. And i think ron understood that i was trying to get away from my home because i began to stay a great great deal with him and with marsha and he was the one who prepared me to go to Oberlin, the repertoire that i sang and uh, then the other music teacher was the one who drove me up so they were working together and uh so they and they were like big brother fathers you know as a brothers slash father figure uh and then when i went to Oberlin. Uh, I stayed very much in in, uh, contact with my principal and from high school um, and Mr. Teer and I um, uh, Knew his family also. He had a son Philip at Oberlin and we were very close and Philip was 10 12 years young older than I am and so he Served as a kind of big brother for me and Within the family there were lots and lots of things that happened to a young uh, student along the way and quite frankly, one of them was i I didn't have a winter coat, and uh, I told philip and he he immediately took me shopping and got me a winter coat uh and there were other things i Philip and I were very, very close, and I would um talk with him and let him know some of the problems I was having but and and they were usually financial, but he uh said, "Don't worry, I know who to talk to, I know what to do and it really helped that he was a member of the uh, Oberlin College staff. Mm. He works somewhere in uh, admissions, but I wasn't sure. And so he was there the whole time that I was there. And so it's like God sent me an angel to kind of look over me, look after me. Uh, And then the main thing when I finally got to Fred was that I realized uh, more and more that I would watch how my uh, peers were behaving with their moms and dads, particularly at Oberlin. They came up all the time and they sent these care packages, and on and on. Uh, I thought, damn, nobody's sending me anything. <laughs> so when I got to uh, Pittsburgh and I sang it at, at the church where Fred was a member, and ultimately his wife introduced me to him, and then uh, I met him and we, I did an um, Easter for Good Friday program of All American Negro Spirituals. And Fred was so moved and so touched by that performance, that presentation, that service at the church. And he said, I want to uh, have lunch with you and get to know you better. Can we please get together? And I said, well, yeah, as long as you're paying for it. (laughs) And of course, he said yes. And then we went to, we uh, finally got it together and we went to Stouffer's. And his wife and the organist, John Lively, at the church all came along. And we were talking. It was very casual, very positive. And then after a drink, they said, okay, I have to go. I have this to do or I have that to do. And I thought, oh, where are you going? You haven't ordered the meal yet. The real stuff. Uh, and I always think that's kind of funny. They had their mind on one thing. I had mine on another. Mm-hmm. But the, the bottom line was that uh, they had set us up so that I would be comfortable and happy and spend my time uh, there with Fred. So they left, and he and I stayed at least for two hours. And I, I always say he never stopped listening, but I never stopped talking. and he was a great listener I'm telling you he set the bar pretty high and he was genuinely interested I discovered he was interested in everybody everybody talked to him and everybody told him their most intimate secrets. sometimes I was allowed sometimes to sit in the room or to be in the near uh, vicinity of him and I would listen to what they were saying I never ever talked about it and occasionally he and I would speak about it privately after it was over and he would explain something about them or what they were. But the problem was how they were going to handle it. He was very, very generous with me, but I didn't uh, overstep the proper professional bonds that way. But the, th- the time Dr. King uh, got killed in 1968, April 4th, I, uh, I was living up on, in what they call the, the uh, uh, Shenley Heights. And Shenley Heights was a black, bourgeois section of town bourgeois means that they were the doctors the lawyers the judges the preachers all the black professionals lived up there and i found a wonderful attic apartment absolutely wonderful and got to know the people who owned the house and uh the wife had a baby and i spent time with her and the baby and stuff it was like family again and sure enough when this dr king got killed Pittsburgh was just a, 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 a well, blaze with and Detroit and uh, Newark, Chicago, Los Angeles, almost every city Memphis, Nashville, Atlanta, Birmingham up, they went up in fire because Black people were so distraught, just like they are right now. And I often find it very difficult to understand yes, you could be angry, but why burn your community down? Mm. The people who have stuck with you over all the years. Who have the shoe shop, or the little grocery shop or their, uh, uh, what do you call it, um, cleaners, little shop, flower shops in your neighborhood. And you burn those down or tear them down or break in and take everything. And those people who have uh, dedicated themselves to surviving in the ghetto, everything is lost. Just everything. It's like having a flood come in or something. It's ridiculous. And uh, so anyway, I was at home and they were rioting in Pittsburgh in the Hill District which is right adjacent to Shenley Heights. In fact, they were all one neighborhood. They just gave my little neighborhood a different name. Mm -hmm. And uh, I saw, I could see from up there in in a garret, I called it a garret in the attic. I could see the uh, fire coming up and uh, smoke after a while. I thought, Lord, you know, it's only like five, six blocks from where I was staying. Well, I got this phone call and it was Fred. And he said, "Franz, how are you doing? I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here. I don't know. And he said, well, we heard we've got on the news that the hill was on fire. And we uh, know from the numbers and the addresses, it's not that far from you. I want you to put something in a suitcase. And John and I are coming to get you. And I said, oh, I'll be all right. No, don't worry. I'm spending time with the family. here. No, we're going to get you out of there. I'll be right over. Bye-bye. And he hung up the phone. Well. They came and they got me in a, uh, less than a half hour. And I remember when I was throwing stuff in the, in the luggage, thinking he, he, he's trying to show his care and his nurturing p- person to me as a, a single lo- kind of lost boy and still a boy in town that there were people there who cared about me and they cared about what happened to me. And they were going to commit themselves in a way I don't think anybody else had ever committed themselves to me in my life. And uh, when he came with John, they were very kind and solicitous and reminded me to get a toothbrush or something, you know, that I forgot. And we went downstairs, got in the car. I went home with him and I stayed three, about three weeks. And during that time, uh, he became my father. He, uh, we talked quietly. I participated in the family with him and his two boys. Wonderful. Uh, Johnny and Jamie and his wife, Joanne. We, uh, it was like, like there was no new person because everybody belonged there. Up on the third floor, he had three or four extra bedrooms. And sometimes, uh, Mr. McFeely who played, uh, uh, uh um, speedy delivery and, uh, and Lady Aberlin and the rest of us would stay on the third floor and uh you know it was like a regular part of their home and i used it probably more than anybody else because uh, i needed the emotional support and so i came back from new york to be in pittsburgh sometimes when i had absolutely nothing uh professionally in the studio to do and that was okay with fred he gave his secretary uh, instructions uh, to talk about when i was coming so that it would be a time when he was going to be there And it might, it'll be interesting for me to see or whatever, what he was doing. And uh, so I did that. And so there were times, obviously, when I was in New York, I'd have three, four months, five months with nothing to do, no jobs except a church job. And that was not going to pay very many bills. And I was lamenting, oh, dear, it was so difficult. Fred said, well, just come home. (laughs) He always called his home in Pittsburgh, my home. Just come home, friends. And stay here a couple of weeks until the next job uh, comes and you know, and we'll, uh, you can go back to New York. And so that's what I did. And this one particular time when I came to Pittsburgh, I was in the studio and he was filming like regular. He had guests and what have you. And it was. At, I was standing in the shadows. But at the very, very end of the show, and he sings, It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. No, tomorrow, tomorrow, we'll start the day tomorrow with a song or two. <laughs> One, two. Tomorrow, tomorrow, we'll start the day tomorrow with a smile for you. Hmm. Till then, I hope you're feeling happy. Till then, I hope your day is snappy. Tomorrow, tomorrow, it soon will be tomorrow and be our day. We will say a very happy tomorrow to you. <laughs> Johnny Costa would go off playing something. And he would, you know, go through that process where he takes off his sweater, puts on his jacket and shoes and steps out of the door back into another world. Well, what that particular day when he said that you are, I love you the way you look, you're perfect just the way you are and I like you like that. uh, I was staring at him and I swear he was staring at me. So I walked around the studio So I got to the point where he was about to come off stage. And I stood there until Johnny finished playing the music. And I said, Fred, were you singing to me? And he said, yes. I've been singing to you for two years, France. But you heard me today. Well, it was like they pulled the lever on the Hoover Dam. (laughs) I, I started crying. I couldn't stop. The tears were so profuse. I, I, I saw it was like the heavens opened up also because it was like a, a lightning bolt. You know, if it strikes and there's all this light, all of a sudden it doesn't last in just a second. It, that's what happened with those words. I like you just the way you are, friends. Well, of course I'm talking to you. And I just started crying and I fell into his arms. And he comforted me and said, I'm always going to love you. I'm always going to take care of you, friends. I told you that. You should know that. And if there's any problem or anything that's going on in your life, you should come to me and discuss it because I am here for you. Well, I mean, I just, I never had a man, an adult man say, I love you. Mm -hmm. I know that sounds very strange. Why should he? Well, my father never said it. My stepfather never said it. I had uncles who I knew cared for me, but they never said it. They never said, I love you, friends. Fred was the first one. And something inside of me switched, it came on. Something the, Me, I came on. And I, I, was, I was so full of acceptance of myself and joy. And I, he put his arms around me until I got myself back together. And he, we, we sat very quietly and had a short, it wasn't a long, a short talk about the fact that everybody needs somebody in this life. Mm-hmm. So don't feel bad if you don't have it, friends. But when it comes to you, you have it too now. And you have to really know that. You have someone who cares about you too. And you don't have to go through life looking, feeling lost, begging. Uh, Daniel sings a song about was I a mistake? And so I was asking myself privately, am I a mistake? And Fred said, no, you are not a mistake. You belong right here with us. So they became my family. And I began to think of Going home for Thanksgiving and certain holidays, I went back and stayed with Fred and Joanne and the two boys. And so that was my uh, life-changing experience that made me whole. It made me feel warm when I was singing or uh, going to auditions. And so I think, well, Fred loves me. And that's all that matters. I'm going to go in here and sing my heart out. And nothing anybody does or says is going to make me do less than my best work. And I found that I began to get jobs, uh, lots of things were just more positive in my life because I was loved and I knew that I was loved.
0: Well, Francois, I've taken up so much of your time and I, I want to really thank you for, for uh, talking with me for the show. I really enjoyed the book, which once again is, is Officer Clemens by Francois Clemens. A memoir. Officer Clemens, a memoir. Officer Clemens, a memoir. Thank you. I I don't want to forget the (laughs) subtitle. All right, Francois. Take care. Thanks so much for doing this.